WBZ original. You know how you see something on Twitter or whatever and you think, I can't unsee this. I can't unknow what just transpired here. Well, but the problem is this will never see the light of day. Yeah, this is getting cut. This is getting cut. No, what do you mean? This we're is not the using this. <laughs> You're crazy. I will, I will burn the hard drive. Welcome to episode 13 of season three here at Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evan. And I'm John Keller. And I'm Leah Martin, Austin's number one podcast, of course. we got to say that every time. And joining us today is Lisa Hughes. Hi, Lisa. Making Hi, a cameo. Lisa. Hi, yeah, guys. last time you were here, we are talking about music. Right. And this yeah. time you have an amazing interview. I'm very excited about this. Yes, we're talking to last year's Boston Marathon women's champion, Des Linden, the first American woman to win the Boston Marathon in 33 years. Wow. Much more with Lisa's one-on-one with Des Linden. Went all the way to Arizona to do that. Right. That'll be Mm -hmm. interesting. And then I'll be talking with the president of the Boston chapter of the NAACP, Tanisha Sullivan. As you may have already heard, the national NAACP convention is coming to Boston next summer, not this one, summer 2020, for the first time since 1982. And we talked about what they're going to see when they get here. Uh, Economic and racial justice, the role that reparations might play in our economy down the road, and how racial justice might play into the new emerging Alston landing neighborhood. Mm. And then we're going to talk to someone you don't see on the air, but who plays a big part in our weather team. WBZ weather executive producer Terry Eliason is going to join us here in the studio to talk about April in Boston and it usually isn't the most Well, it pleasant. says right here on the sheet. Uh, it says right here on the sheet, April in Boston usually sucks. <laughs> How bad will it suck this year? That is I, for one, think it's false that April sucks. I agree. It is and not so true. We'll, we'll, I would say it's half and half. We're going to ask Terry about his outlook <laughs> um, for April. We will. And then we have Liam's rant of the week. Oh, we do? Oh, We're right. Talk okay. About yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Issue. Oh, yeah, yeah. You you get me going. You charge <laughs> right. me up and I'll so, go. So, so, I'm, apparently... I'm starting to think March kind of sucks, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is, this is a hot, on, April. hot, heavy bedroom issue. No, when a couple sleeps side by side on yeah. a bed, do you always sleep on the same side? Someone on Twitter really blew Liam's mind by saying they switch all the time. He and his wife switch sides and, all the time. Um, this was earth shattering. I have very big thoughts about this. So a couple of weeks ago, Lisa, you had the chance to fly out to Arizona. You caught Des Linden training for the Boston Marathon. Yeah, Paula, we were just happy to get there because our flight left on the single snowiest day of the winter. You know, and as the snow is piling up and I'm sitting at home at mm. 3.30 in the morning, I'm like, there is no way this flight's going to go out. But it did, albeit five hours late. Uh, and we got to Arizona in time to talk to Des, who is training out there this year. She went to school at ASU. So she's back really where she fell in love with the sport. And uh, it was great for me to have a chance to talk with her because usually I talk with her here. And she's got a little bit of her, you know, game face on and she's very focused on the race. And so to see her in that pre-race mode uh, in a place that's warm and beautiful was, it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly in many ways winning the Boston Marathon has changed her life. Although she says... I'm still a professional runner. I'm still the same person. And let's face it, like this is probably fleeting, but mm. it's it's wonderful. Is she the favorite this year to repeat? I don't know if she's the favorite. That's a great question, John. Um, she would tell you, and, and you'll hear her say this, she has this uh, self-deprecating quality where um, she gets very hard on herself or even begins to undermine her own success uh, or question her own success. Could I do it if it were a great day? You remember last year's Boston Marathon was just miserable. I mean, it was freezing. It rained all day. You made that turn onto Boylston and there was a massive headwind. So, you know, she, many people after that be like, woo, you know, I'm the champion. And she is like, you know, yeah, I'm the champion, but I got to know, could I do it if the I, weather I was good? I won under these circumstances. Yeah. Because a lot of the other elite women dropped out of the race, right? So in Africa, and um, so in the Kenyans and, and the Ethiopians in particular, as a rule, they don't run in rain because they associate, particularly in Kenya, rain with disease, hmm. with malaria, with mosquitoes. Oh. So. You don't run in rain. You don't train in rain if you can help it. You don't run in rain. You run at altitude. You can run when it's hot, but you would avoid running in rain at all costs. Mm -hmm. And you're right. A lot of the runners got hypothermic. And one thing that was interesting, and you'll her her uh, her her manager, 
um, Josh Cox, who was also a great runner and a record holder, said, you know, Des was the best dressed last year because she wore a jacket to start the race that she never took off. Mm. And so many of the female runners became hypothermic. They were in those little teeny tiny tops, you know, their singlets and their, you know, their sports bras. And Des kept that coat on the whole time. And it clearly made a difference. Yeah. So does a little part of her, do you sense, it's almost like if Tiger Woods doesn't show up for the tournament, you know, did the rest of the field do, really do well? Does she worry that because some of those other runners not, dropped out, she didn't beat the best? Oh, that's a great question. You know, in 2011, she came in second by two seconds. Um, mm. So, you know, she's yes, known she one. was right there. And that plays over and over in your head. I don't think it's a fear or a worry. I think it's the same kind of thing that motivates anyone who is at the highest of high levels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's her training is a little different this year. So after winning Boston, she essentially broke up with the running project she had been with for 13 years oh. um, for a number of reasons, one of which was that um, the Hanson's Brooks project signed a runner to its roster um, who was under investigation at Nike. And although she and I did not discuss this, it's been widely reported that that didn't line up with her values. Mm. And they're under no obligation to talk to her about that. But, you know, she was like, this is a good time for me to make a change. Um, but she decided to go back out to Arizona. And we caught her at a track workout, which is something to behold. I mean, as someone who has never run fast for anything except maybe an airplane, <laughs> to see her start this workout at what would be the equivalent of a five-minute you know, per wow. mile pace yeah. and then get faster as Whoa. the workout progressed. But with these periods of, of rest um, is really something. So she's healthy. Um, she's running in a place where she's happy. Uh, everybody at the track knew her. So she was very motivational to all these students out there who were all calling her by name and everything. Um, and she loves Boston. Like, I can't underscore that enough. She considers this her home course. Mm. And, you know, this is where she ran her very first marathon. Um, and I remember interviewing her at the time and thinking, like, that was like 13 years ago. Mm. But this, she feels, is like this This is her place. And can I just say quickly, yeah. before we get to the interview, that I don't put an asterisk next to last year at all. I think it's even more remarkable that she yeah. stayed on the course in those conditions and still finished the way exactly. she did and finished way ahead of and the rest that's, of the And that's important to remember. You're right. I mean, this was someone who at mile six or seven, she'll say, had was contemplating dropping out. She was like, you know what? This is not my day. Yeah, These conditions are terrible. Did she go to the bathroom or something like that? She didn't go to the bathroom, but Shalane Flanagan, you'll remember, oh. decided to take a break. Oh, right. And uh, Des had said, you know, I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to affect the pack for you so you can jump back in. Um, but the pack wasn't running so quickly that it was going to make a difference if Shalane took the fastest bathroom break in the history of bathroom breaks. Like literally, it was like, how did she? How did she yeah. do that? It was like she Chris was, Farley and Tommy in, Boy yeah, going exactly. into the airplane bathroom, <laughs> right. and he comes out dressed as the uh, flight yes, attendant. Right, exactly. Yeah. This will be the only time in Shalane Flanagan's life she is ever compared to Chris Farley. But yes, <laughs> in that context, yes. I mean, it was so speedy. Um, and and so I guess if there's a lesson, you know, an applicable lesson out of this for anyone, it's that you just never know. And as long as you hang in there and you don't quit, the outcome is not predetermined. Boston Hill, the glittering jewel city of the world. How has your relationship with Boston evolved over time? I, I mean, I grew up there as a runner, as a marathoner. It's, it's been the home course for me. And it's where I did my debut and fell in love with the sport and um, just have really taken in all the things about the city. And there's still so much more to learn that every time I go back, I'm like, oh, I didn't know this about the course or, you know, this about the city. And um, yeah, it does. At this point, it feels like home. And to have had the pinnacle be on such a miserable day. <laughs> right? I mean, it seems very fitting. Yeah. It's, <laughs> for me. Right? Like how hard you work to get mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. from the standpoint of like, grinding it out yeah it was I felt like it was a day where your motivation had to be super strong and you had to really want to get after it and be motivated late in the race because once things slipped away it was easy to shut down and say like I I just want to be done you know so I felt like not just trying to win on that day but for so many years it was like this is my opportunity and it was just so perfect for me like I'm definitely the hungriest out here for this. Could you sense pretty early that it was not going to be a great day for 
other runners? Like, could you could you feel that? Early early on, I was feeling that about myself, <laughs> and I think. I, I kind of early on just sort of checked out and was like, let me help other people. Um, and then as I got in the race, it was like, okay, I'm actually not the only one feeling bad. And I might, even though I'm feeling bad, I might be feeling better than some other people. But it took a while for that to really kind of develop and for me to even notice that because it was like, oh, I'm miserable. This is awful for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the beginning, you really thought it wasn't your day. Right. What was happening that made you feel that way? Um... I think it was a lot of really basic things, just, I mean, being so cold and so wet and so miserable, I was like, I'm not gonna warm up, which is, I mean, not typical. So the first few miles you felt a little bit flat. Um, and I felt like given the conditions, we were running pretty hard the first six miles. Like it, the pace didn't feel sustainable at all. Um, it just felt like too much racing that early. And I think that that stuff was just making me feel a little bit off. And it was like, eh, this isn't gonna go well if we stay here, so. And what changed? Um, I think I knew, I, I felt off and it was like, how can I help these other Americans? Like, how can I make sure Shalane has an okay day? Or like, what can I do in, in service of someone else for this part? Um, and then I can always step off. So is that unusual to have, because we hear about it with other teams, but we don't typically hear about American women working together <laughs> in a marathon. How unusual was that? Um, I think we have seen it more and more recently uh, with Amy and Shalane at the trials. That was a huge moment. Um, I, I felt like there was so much emphasis on the American females last year and just that really great group of people we put in the race. And it just really felt like it was our time. So when I knew it wasn't gonna be my day, it was like, okay, like let's make sure someone else can benefit from us having this really strong group. And, you know, I think we've seen success breed success and we've seen um, Shalane's performance in New York lifted people up. And it was like, if it's not about you, that's okay. Like, let's just boost each other up out here. And that's seems to be happening more and more on the women's side. But that had to happen organically. That yeah. wasn't a conversation that you had beforehand. Not beforehand, no. <laughs> I, I mean, a big part of it is that Shalane and I have been on teams for a really long time now. I mean, going back to the 2012 games and then obviously 16 and um, we're not teammates. We don't have the same color uniform or the same logo, but it's like you feel the camaraderie with the American group and having been in that, you know, past situations where we're working on the same team, it was an easy thing to kind of check in for her. Like, what do you mean today? <laughs> that when she took off to go to the Portageon, like, what were you thinking in that moment? <laughs> well, first and foremost, I feel, I, I mean, it should never be a thing that like defines Shalane by any means. Like it feels like this one thing to talk about, but she's um, an incredible athlete. And it was like, it wasn't gonna change. Her needing to go to the restroom didn't change how people needed to run the race. So I didn't, I mean, it was like, you have time, the pace is slow enough. And you going to the restroom doesn't mean that pushing from here on in is a smart idea. So it was, you know, it was one of those things that made sense to just drop back and work together to get back in the group. And you were talking before that. Yeah. Because I noticed it. Yeah. What were you saying? <laughs> I cannot tell you. Ah! <laughs> Not even now. No. Um, <laughs> no. I, I mean, early on, I think around mile six or seven, when I felt like I was having an off day, I was like, hey, if you need anything, if you want me to pace you or like push up front or block wind, whatever, just let me know. It was more condensed than that. But, um, you know, and she grabbed me by the shoulders, like literally, and was like, are you okay? Are you going to drop out? I'm like, no, it's fine. Like, uh, we'll see what happens. But, you know, just let me know if you need anything. And then, around that halfway point, she was like, do you think I should, she's like, I have to go to the bathroom, do you think I should go right here? And it was like, well, if you don't think that that situation's gonna get better, which it usually doesn't while you're running, just go and we'll, the pace is slow enough, it's fine. How different was that experience? I think in those conditions, everything was a little bit different. You know, it was like, we, everyone's really struggling. This is not comfortable or, necessarily fun for anyone so let's just make this a better experience for all of us and like I'm gonna help you out if you need help I think also for me in the back of my mind knowing like, okay I could check out at any time and just step off the course um, 
it was easier to be like, okay, it's about her, not me right now. Um, you know, you mentioned that when she won New York, how that changed things. How much has your Boston win changed running for American women now? That's a good question. I I don't know. I don't really know the answer. Um, Did I mean, people it's tell you? Changed my life, and that's it's great. Um, I hope that it get more people excited about running. I hope that um, maybe people have loftier goals because of it. And those are all hopes for sure. Um, we'll see down the line. You know, I think that there's uh, a group of young runners that you know hopefully were inspired, and we'll hear about those stories later down the line and I'm sure I mean I've seen it with Shalane and and so I, I think it's probably there for my story too but to be seen. <laughs> Do you feel it when you go to expos and when you're at some of these different races? There, Yeah there's an excitement I mean I think the women's side in general is super exciting right now you know Amy's medal um, in the world championships was huge and uh, Shalane's win huge and there's just this momentum and this energy and so I think um, we'll keep seeing big performances. Speaking of performance, you mentioned you have a new coach. Yes. How, how has that experience been? Because, you, you know, you, you come off a big win and mm-hmm. you make a big change. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been the most different aspect of this training season for you? Yeah, so it's a new old coach because it's my college coach. And um, so it's, it's fun kind of going back and working with him. He's someone who I feel like really shaped the mental side of the sport for me and any type of mental toughness I probably got from him. And um, so it's been fun working with him again and he's definitely challenging me in new ways. Uh, Things we've maybe had gotten away from for a long time, um, tapping into some speed work, lowering the mileage. it's it's been tricky because there's you know 13 years of a belief system and like I have to be working this hard and I have to be doing this much mileage and these long runs mean that and now it's like throw that out the window this is what we believe in now and so it's tricky at times but I totally trust him and you know sometimes I'll be doing more mileage than I should and he's like why like what are you doing <laughs> and so it's fun it's it's challenging and it's um, but it's exciting and every day is pretty pretty fresh and pretty new. You talked about the mental side of this, and I've always thought of you as a super cerebral runner. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself in the process of winning Boston last year? Wow. Um, I think it's just how much that race meant to me. So I, I feel like I found a new level of toughness on that day. When you widened the gap and you were all by yourself, what was that like? <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. I was like, for sure this is a repeat of 11. Someone's sitting like right here. That's what you were telling yourself that in that moment? That is what I for sure thought. And not until like literally 200 meters, like Tom Grill, he goes like this. And I'm like, he's not fist pumping if I'm going to get out kicked right now. So like, I think I'm going to win. But the whole time I was just like, I'm going to get passed because I'm not running fast right now. And were you not looking over your shoulder? Like, I didn't think yeah. so. I saw when I, your gaze seemed to be right here. Um, and I, and so I, so to hear you say this kind of surprises <laughs> me only because you ran with the confidence of somebody who just knew she was alone. But you're saying you had no idea you were no alone. No idea, yeah. Wow. Okay, so you see Tom. I see Tom. And what, what are your thoughts in those last 12 seconds? I actually, I said it as I crossed like, I can't believe that effing just happened. Like, (laughs) so unprepared for it. Like, today was not, it was not supposed to be the day. I mean, you think about those first six miles and you're like, man, everything felt wrong today. And it just all turned around. What is the bigger lesson there? Like, beyond marathoning? Uh, I mean, I don't say never give up, because that's just total cliche, but... I think it just, for me, it was the whole mantra for this whole thing was keep showing up. And there's always reasons to check out and there's always reasons to say, woe is me or whatever. But um, if you show up and try one more time, you show up and be in that next moment and just keep showing up, you can turn it around. And even if that's not winning, but it's getting through and finding a new level of toughness or uh, just learning a little bit more about yourself, um, show up for the next thing. What's your next Everest? 
I feel like that's probably been the trickiest thing is there's not a thing on the radar for me right now. You not know, like Boston was. No, yeah. I mean, for me, it's getting back to Boston and performing really well again. Like it's still, I have this ability to um, underrate or find something you know wrong with my performance or a reason it wasn't worthy enough you know and so I'm like well maybe it was just the weather let's go try it again you know and I think that's what keeps me getting back out there like let's see if I can do it on a good day let's see if I can do it if it's hot or you know what's the next thing in Boston but it's it always kind of circles back to that race how would you define that race um it is the marathon if you want to understand the event and you know the history of it and just what it brings out in you what it's supposed to ask of you and all the challenges of it you run Boston it's you know it's got the tough course you don't know what the weather's going to be there are no pacers um, it's the every man's Olympics there's all of these really great things and it's just all of the things in marathon are supposed to be packed into one race and there's 26.2 mile road races across the world. There's only one marathon in my eyes, and that's Boston. The goal is a city with charm, character, and diversity. Here's a fun fact to impress your friends with. Did you realize that Boston was home to the very first chapter of the NAACP, the oldest civil rights organization in America? And next year, for the first time in nearly four decades, Boston will play host to the annual NAACP convention. Joining us to talk a little bit about that and some pressing local issues that affect communities of color in our area is the president of the Boston chapter of the NAACP, Attorney Tanisha Sullivan. Welcome. Thank you, John. Happy Good it's to always be here. nice to have a president in the studio with us. <laughs> so... Um, uh, when you first were contacted, I assume you were contacted by the national organization, and they said, hey, we're thinking of mm-hmm. bringing the convention to Boston. What was your initial response? Uh, so I'm a Bostonian, right? And so, <laughs> and have a lot of pride in being from Boston. Um, love the city. You're not a Yankee fan then. Absolutely not. Okay, I'm glad we got that on <laughs> the record. Absolutely not. My very first job, uh, you know, when I was in high school, quick another fun fact, was working for the Red Sox. So I have a long history with the Red Sox, will forever be a Red Sox fan. Um, That being said, look, you know, I had no question that as, you know, as a city and as a branch, we would be a a wonderful host to this convention. What was important to me from when I, from the very beginning, um, was that we looked at this as an opportunity, not just to throw a great party, but to actually have a lasting impact on, uh, on the people who live here um, and using it as an opportunity to perhaps accelerate some of the work that we're trying to do um, to address economic inequality in in the city, for example, um, using it as an opportunity for us to um, perhaps amplify many of the conversations that we're having around racial inequity. We have the, the BCEC is on the seaport. It's, you know, not... Uh, well, let's let's just let's just be frank. It's the whitest neighborhood in the city of Boston. It's also it also happens to be the newest, um, and so being thoughtful about bringing you know all these people of color to that particular neighborhood, we need to think about what we can do to help transform it between now and then. How did that happen? The seaport being. <laughs> so why? Um, we just, uh, there was no thought. If you recall, uh, you know, uh, the Globe Spotlight series uh, in 2017, I remember reading um, the piece on the seaport. And uh, when I got to the part where they talked, you know, asked a very similar question, how did we get here? And the response at the time from the BPDA was, you know, like we, we didn't think about it. And I thought to myself, I said, well, there it is. There's the answer. You know, if we're going to really tackle um, these issues, economic, any of these issues that, that relate to race, we have to be intentional about them. Look, we cannot rest on, you know, our good intentions or, or our quote-unquote progressive values, right, or that we're good people. This stuff doesn't happen overnight. We've got hundreds of years um, of, uh, of, of, of racial inequity. 
equity built into our systems, if we're going to dismantle that, we have to be intentional about it. So we got there because we weren't thinking about it. Hopefully we can course correct not only on the seaport, but also um, hopefully there will be other cities and towns as they start to develop. They'll use the seaport as an example of what not to do. Well, we may have a chance sooner rather than later to put some of those lessons into effect. They're talking about creating an entire new neighborhood right here in Alston. Yes, they are. As Alston's number one podcast, we're very focused <laughs> on that emerging new yes. neighborhood. And uh, it's an open question. Uh, I mean, it's a blank slate mm-hmm, right now. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, how will we know, let's say in regard to the planning of that new neighborhood, what should informed listeners here be watching for as a sign that, yeah, we realized our mistake in the seaport and we're really making a good faith effort this time to make sure this neighborhood reflects the city's broader diversity? Right. You know, the other piece I, I do want to add to that um, is, you know, not only is the seaport, does the seaport lack um, racial and ethnic diversity, there's also very little class diversity there. Um, you know, it, it, the seaport is not accessible to working class and poor families in the city of Boston. Um, and so when we think about the Alston area and the development that um, that is impending here, I think it's important to, to be mindful of, yes, the racial and ethnic diversity, but also class diversity, making sure that there is affordable housing, affordable and accessible housing um, for working class and um, poor families in the city. Um, you know, we are very fortunate here in the city of Boston to experience to to be kind of on um the benefit to be beneficiaries of great economic growth um in the commonwealth um and so what that means is that we have significant pockets of wealth in this city um and and that's what we kind of hold up as you know look at how great we are um what we're not so good at is 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 talking about and acknowledging the 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 deep poverty that exists here um and so when we think about um creating neighborhoods developing neighborhoods if we are who we say we are right we like to say that we're progressive, we like to say that we're inclusive, um, we like to say that we're welcoming to all, then that means we must um, not leave behind our working class and poorer families. So when we're developing neighborhoods, um, making sure that housing is affordable Um, that there's housing that's affordable in those neighborhoods, not in another neighborhood, in those neighborhoods, making sure that there are um, uh, accessible supermarkets, right, in the neighborhoods, right? In the seaport, there's no supermarket. So if you want to get to the super, in the transportation, let's not even, I mean, we can be all day talking about the, 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 the poor transportation system we have. There's no transportation down there that that's readily accessible. So it means that, you know, you got to have a car to get to a supermarket. We can't, that cannot be the case in Alston. So I'm hopeful that um, that this area um, will uh, will do it better than the seaport, <laughs> you know, and perhaps become uh, more attractive than the seaport is um, as a place for people to live, work, and play. Quite frankly, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently within the context of the Democratic presidential race about reparations. Mm-hmm. And for for listeners who, who read it, or if you didn't, I really recommend that you read it. It's now several years old. The writer Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a long, long article in the Atlantic Monthly magazine uh, called The Case for Reparations, uh, which is, uh, goes back over the whole history of the economic disenfranchisement of people of color in America right up to the present day and how government policies, and this is long after slavery now, government policies deprived uh, black people and other people of color of the opportunity to build wealth in the ways that other Americans do by owning property uh, uh, and uh, amassing capital over time. And we saw the Globe series pointing out that the uh, median household net worth of black residents of Boston was uh, $8. Uh, so uh, when the convention comes here, and there's a lot of talk about this, or even as we go forward in the planning of this new neighborhood in Alston, in the context of public policy decisions that could be made to start to make up for 
these many, many years of economic disenfranchisement. Let's talk about one. I mean, it, obviously, it's more than one, but w would a, a reparations policy, for instance, again, excuse me for rambling on, there is a question mark at the end. <laughs> it's here. okay. In his article, Coates pointed out that after World War II, Germany paid hundreds of millions of dollars in reparations, cash reparations, to the state of Israel mm -hmm. for what happened during World War II. And the money was used to build the electric grid, which in turn was the, the foundational stimulus for the Israeli economic miracle. Okay? So that just seems to me to be almost something of a template. Uh, w are we talking about making uh, the opportunity for uh, to own property, to own housing? Is that job one of any kind of future reparations? I think, I, I do think that is, that is a starting point. When we understand the history of this country and what's valued most in this country, it is land, right? Um, it is ownership of, of land. It's about getting your space. Um, and what we know is that, as you mentioned, for generations, uh, black people in this country were denied the opportunity to own, um, and, um, and that there were government-supported policies that, um, that allowed that to perpetuate for generations. Um, and so I do think home ownership, land ownership is, is a starting point. Um, and to that end, I think that there are things that we can do um, from, a, from a policy standpoint. Um, you know, web, and, and, and actually something to note is I, I think the mass, house, mass housing um, under Crystal Corngay um, is doing some innovative work in that space um, that I think we should um, acknowledge and celebrate in terms of, you know, providing people with an opportunity, you know, greater access to home ownership. Um, I, I do think that the things that the city could be doing, city of Boston and other cities and towns can be doing to help people own property. Um, because that, when we think about, you mentioned the $8 net worth number, that's from a, it should be noted, from a 2015 um, uh, uh, color of wealth study by the Boston um, Federal Reserve. Right. It has been, it was cited, as you noted, in the 2017 Globe Spotlight series. Um, the branch, the NAACP Boston branch, we released a report also in 2017 and, and called out that, um, that data point as well. A lot of when we look at the that wealth gap, a lot of the wealth that um, that that white families have and other families who've been able to amass wealth is in property, right. home ownership, um, especially you know, around here. Especially around here, yeah. you know, and 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 it's home ownership that you know over generations being able to you know. You know, your grandmother, your grandfather, great grandparents purchase property, and you know it's intergenerational; it gets passed down. And you know, you can borrow uh, on you, it. You can and, borrow yeah. on it. it, and it really helps to. Um, it, it cannot be discounted the impact that that has, right? Um, you know, you look in the South End, for example. You know, in thirties, forties, fifties, you know. A, piece of property that might have been $40,000, $50,000 back then is now worth millions of dollars. That's significant. Um, that can That's game-changing for a family. Um, and so thinking about um, how we can um, as as neighborhoods are evolving, thinking about how we can create create opportunities for um, families to buy, um, whether it's making available grants for down payments, um, or it's making um, more readily available um, loans and and kind of rethinking how loans are allocated to purchase homes. Um, but I also think it's important, right, um, that we take the time to help educate people about what home ownership looks like, what land, what property ownership looks like. You know, you have to make sure when they come knocking to refinance that you understand what right. refinancing looks like. What is a reverse mortgage? You know, those types right. of things. There was both um, reckless and predatory lending. Lending happening yeah. during that time. Yeah. And so lesson learned from that is it, it must be um, coupled with um, robust education um, for communities too. We talked about education uh, obviously, as being one of the, one of the key elements here in the 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 education gap between white and Asian achievement and 
uh, black and Latino achievement remains a serious problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, just recently up on Beacon Hill, uh, Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz of Jamaica Plain was replaced as chair of the Senate Education Committee by Jason Lewis of Winchester, and you were one of a number of co-signers of a statement where you uh, that said in part, Chang-Diaz serves as the latest example of how people of color, especially women of color, are subject to rebuke for representing us too fiercely and too well. We were expecting bold change from the legislature's leadership. Now we fear this commitment has moved in the opposite direction, especially when it comes to closing the opportunity and achievement gaps. What do you mean by being subject to rebuke, and yeah. why is she being rebuked, in your view? I think, you know, that uh, statement was issued, I think it's important to note, um, by six women of color. Yeah. We also uh, are were concerned and continue to be concerned about how women, specifically women of color, are treated in leadership. And so when the decision was made to um, replace Senator Chain Diaz as the uh, chair uh, for the Joint uh, Committee on Education, what was striking to us, aside from just the the unexpected removal, um, what was surprising to us was how it was talked about in the media. Um, you know, uh, Senator Shane Diaz was described as being, you know, very passionate and, and committed and, 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 you know, and all of these would be nice things to say, but then it was, you know, then kind of the, the backhand of it was, but we need pragmatic leadership. We actually need to get things done. So, so, so the suggestion that, um, that being passionate about an issue, being committed to an issue, not wavering on, you know, for her, it was, um, she was deeply and continues to be deeply committed to um, in increasing funding and supports for English language learners and low-income students. They're not necessarily the same. Um, and, um, you know, she was uh, chastised um, in many respects um, for, for being unwielding in her commitment um, to those students. Um, and it was seen as, um, in, in some ways, the way it was presented as a hindrance to progress. She wasn't willing to negotiate. Um, and, and what we say to that is, Absolutely. She was not willing to negotiate on the backs of children of color, not willing to negotiate on the backs of low-income children, not willing to negotiate on the backs of ELs. And we say, yeah, that's right. That's what that's what our expectation is um, for her in, in representing us and our children. Um, so, so that was something that, that we thought was important to call out. But Senate President Karen Spilka, who made this decision, mm-hmm. uh, is a woman, mm-hmm. and she's not exactly a right-winger either. Okay. I mean, I'm 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 missing something here. No, you're not. I think you know. I, I think that's one of the things that um, you know is a challenge for us here in the Commonwealth. You know, we you know we pride ourselves on being strong blue, very progressive, um, as if that's enough. Um, the label is not enough. Um, the action. Um, is is what we're looking at. And um, it doesn't matter whether you're a woman in leadership or you're a person of color in leadership. Um, If the policies you support, if the action you take um, is not reflective of the values of those communities or those constituencies, then that's something that we need to call out. You've got a lot on your platter. (laughs) (laughs) Tanisha Sullivan, President, Boston Chapter NAACP. Thank you for joining us on Studio BC. Thank you. Happy to be here. The city is for some glamorous, stimulating. Well, joining us now on Studio BZ is the the evil genius, if you don't oh, mind wow. me calling it that. <laughs> I've never evil heard genius. that term before. Behind, like you need a black well, not evil, but I just <laughs> like the way evil genius sounds. Uh, behind the uh, award-winning WBZ weather department, and that is our weather producer, Terry Elias. And welcome, Terry. Thank you for having me. Good it's to have you here on it's Studio BZ. This is my first time. Very first exciting. time. Well, I, I was moved to reach out to you. Should have done it a lot sooner by a tweet you issued the other day that really made me happy. You indicated that once we get through this last stretch of Mm -hmm. winter-type cold, we are looking at potentially a well above average, warmer and drier April. Let me just Do say that, that tweet right? was what, like two days ago? So, yeah. So things have undoubtedly changed in the weather world since. <laughs> <laughs> I don't okay. track that. No, Get okay, the I'm hell kidding. out of here. <laughs> <laughs> we should uh, say from the outset that John thinks April 
is terrible. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and I disagree. Really? And last uh, April was terrible. Last April was the fourth coldest April in, on oh. record in Boston. It, yeah. it was terrible. That, it was let me say, cold, I coach baseball, rainy. a lot of baseball in the spring, and oh. last April was miserable. Yeah. So April can be good. But I, I feel like more often than not, it's it, you're waiting for when. Where's the warm up? Mm. Yeah, your days of clouds and days of. Uh, anyhow, to, to so, answer your question, yeah, um, this April does look much better than last. First off, let's go there. It's oh, not going to be. It looks warmer than average. Uh, pretty much every long range pros- prognosticator website, everyone that's looking into the future more than seven days, you know, right. several weeks. And what's the average temperature? Uh, well, it, it, it depends. For the whole month, it's like fifty degrees right. or so. Um, but like I said, last month we were about five degrees below average. This month I would expect us to end up above average, probably by a few degrees. Mm, Um, Excellent. Yeah, it doesn't mean every day is going to be sunny and warm, but I think overall we're looking at a more reasonable start to spring. And what about May? Uh, I, I think we can say the same right through, perhaps right through summer, actually. It, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and certainly not as rainy as last year. Well, uh, so here's the thing. It, a lot of depends on El Nino. There's, El Nino has been kind of sitting and, and waiting for the last several months. It's, it's there. It's not. It's kind of weak. It, a lot of indications now are that El Nino is going to come on stronger come this summer mm. and end of fall. And if that happens, then that could have big ramifications on our summer, fall, and maybe even next winter, mm-hmm. um, being wetter and perhaps uh, uh, warmer as well. So huh. that is this basically El Nino is this huge pool of warm water out in the middle of the Pacific, and you know as that goes, so goes the weather for much of the country. Really, it really does influence us in a major way. So. Uh, that is really what we're keying on for, you know, spring, summer. So early season baseball at Fenway might not be the nightmare from hell that it usually uh, is. No, I'm sure there'll be a couple of really raw, chilly nights, as there yeah. always are. But I think overall, um, we're looking fairly optimistic. Fantastic. Mm. When yeah. you look at April and you go, I think it's going to be a little bit warmer than normal. You're looking at El Nino. And what specifically are you looking at? And I should add, are there other variables that you're there looking are, at to make that determination? Yeah, there are a number of variables. Um, we could do a whole podcast just on forecasting and, and what, what's going on in the atmosphere. But if you remember last year, March into April, you know, we had all those storms, those nor'easters, a lot of cold. Mm-hmm. And the major driver behind that was a big block over Greenland. I don't know if you guys remember us talking about the mm. Greenland block. Or, yes. Anyways, that was basically just delivering Canadian cold the entire spring for us, at least March and April. This year, that is like, it couldn't be more opposite. There's no blocking. Our flow is almost entirely off the Pacific, which is west to east. So storms are moving through, things are coming and going. You know, we get sort of regular, typical warm-ups and cool-downs. So this year, it's a sort of fast-moving flow, fast-moving jet stream, and a more normal-type uh, weather forecast, you know, adding with a little El Nino in there. And the oceans are also very warm as well. What do you mean by adding El Nino? That El Nino El is Nino, warmer than... El Nino than it... typically, it doesn't have huge influences in the summertime like it does in the winter. But if, if anything, it means warmer and wetter. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think you combine that with the fact that our the oceans, generally speaking, in the Gulf, in the Pacific, and in the Atlantic are running milder than average. So there's a lot of reasons and signs why we feel like it's going to be milder than every spring and summer. Well, now that's ge- obviously that's that's wonderful news. Generally, I'm not a real cold weather person. Mm. You may have gleaned, <laughs> but what are the implications for bugs from a mild? Can I just say something about bugs? Yeah. Um, I, I it, funny we were just talking about this in the weather office the other day. Somebody smart needs to come up with a re- some way of just eliminating mosquitoes and ticks from the earth. Why has that not <laughs> happened? <laughs> because so, they feed the birds. I, I, I'm sorry. There, there's got to be another way. It's the way. food cycle. They Harry, ruin everything. Do I have to tell you yeah. this? <laughs> they, bugs will ruin your summer vacation. They'll ruin. If, I don't know if you mosquitoes, if, and mosquitoes ticks. and ticks. Mosquitoes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, mosquitoes like and ticks. Bugs. Some bugs are fine. Yes. Yeah. I need yeah. to know, Liam. What what is it about April that you like so much? Oh, I, just, I don't actively like it. I just don't dislike it. I think you're moving toward you're getting somewhere. warmer it gets weather. Better. You're getting somewhere by Typically. the end of April. The flowers are starting to it's come out. It's such a tease. It's, it it's really so is. Frustrating. You know, it really I always is. think T. S. Eliot wrote, "April is the cruelest month," which in yeah. my mind is you constantly think you're going to be able to shed that coat, but you really can't. Yeah. Some yeah. folks feel like March. A lot of folks are like, "March is here. We're home free." It's like, right. are you serious? No. April. April. March. Uh, April. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Terry, now now uh, last fall we got shorted on the foliage. Yes, we, right? got, sh- we got shorted on our new, our typical fall weather. Just Be- wasn't because it was had been so wet. It was very wet. Yeah, uh, started late yeah. summer, continued into the fall. Uh, we just had you know if you remember every five days it was pouring. Now we got a long ways to go, but are we headed toward a repeat of that? 
Foliage season? Yeah. Wow, you really are looking ahead. Yeah, you bet I am. <laughs> you get to be my age. You, uh, I mean, you look listen, forward, not it, back. It, it, with the given the current forecast of warm and wet, then perhaps it could be another dull season. Yeah. Um, but that's that's really tough. I mean, now, yeah. now you're really remains stretching. Remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. Yes. Uh, so you're not prepared to tell I'm me not how, going, how many degree days I'm going to burn on the AC? Not quite so. there no. yet. I, if anything, I think you know we could have somewhat of a repeat of last year's humidity. I mean, last year, I don't know if you remember, summer was very humid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it uh, was. So I'm not anticipating that to that yeah. level, but I do think with the current forecast, could see a lot of that. I'm, I'm predicting my my daughter's wedding will be in about the year 2036. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, Start working on that. What do you think? Yeah, give me yeah. a day on that. Okay. okay. Yeah. To sum up, though, Terry just said that he gets phone calls, people asking for forecasts months in advance and John and Paula just <laughs> asked about July 4th and Memorial Day okay, we've covered foliage season we've covered 4th of July and let me just uh, like again term. I have uh, your home address so uh, okay. Terry this what is a, when you say to John who's going to win the 2020 election uh, that's, that's right, right. Yes. that's right I don't have and the slightest idea leaving? now what about Boston Calling that's coming up the the uh, the rock festival <laughs> May mid-May is it or uh, it's oh my but God. you're but your long term spring forecast. Your long term spring forecast. You're saying overall, <laughs> overall looks mild better than, than average. Last year. Yes. Okay. That's yes. Good. Absolutely. April for sure. I can guarantee. Well, I hate to, no <laughs> weatherman should ever say guarantee. <laughs> right. No. Yeah, uh, but right. it looks much much different from last April. Nice. Yes. All right, Terry. We'll let you go. Thanks for having me. This was Thank fun. You. It's good great. Please come back again anytime. Yeah, good only when you have good news, though. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, but before we go, I just wanted to point out this one thing that I saw on Twitter that got everyone on Twitter and everyone in the newsroom going last night. This guy, Steve O'Rourke, probably otherwise a very nice gentleman, but uh, he tweets, was just chatting in work and apparently it's weird that Amy, my wife, and I don't sleep on the same side of the bed every night. Some nights I like to sleep by the window, some nights the door... It's not really that unusual, is it? And my first reaction was, Steve, that is insanely unusual and strange. And you are an extraterrestrial. <laughs> and if and we should probably investigate this one person. at that, though. I want to know yeah. more. Is there a nightly negotiation? So he right, writes. Does it, does it say anything about what Amy wants? He does. It's really yeah. all about what Steve wants. He did follow up here, and he said, Funny. "I feel like I need to point out the following because he saw the reaction he was getting." He said, "The first one in chooses." Ah. We've never disagreed over it. We move pillows and books as we move, and we don't change every single night. It seems like every once in a while they'll just happen to Shake switch up. up based yeah. on their schedules, whatever. But again, I thought the first thing that came to mind was if ever there were an alien invasion and the aliens started assuming the identities of the humans, and you're trying to figure <laughs> out how do we figure out which one's an alien, which one's a human. That would be my question. We go, hey, do you and your your yeah. partner switch sides? By the and way, then if he said we do switch sides, I go, gotcha. Yeah. The an alien, alien invasion in general haunts Liam. Yeah. Yeah. He brings yeah, yeah. this Clearly. up often. Also, I must say, I've never thought Yankee of it before, yeah. but I will now, <laughs> definitely. But again, that would be right. the way you suss out um, who's an yeah, alien. Is this you. this question? It behooves us to go around the table, Lisa. What's your what's your sleeping situation? At home, we do not switch. I mean, but I also get home so much later than my husband. Like he he would get to pick, but he picks the same side. Right. Um, and I think it makes sense since I'm like washing my face and brushing my teeth right. that you know I'm closest to the bathroom do you pick this apparently it is assumed that men always sleep by the door yeah, that is, that is no. a, I think I'm closer do to the, the door either. technically because if is, the dog whimpers in the middle of the night I think it's my job to go let the dog out <laughs> so <laughs> I have to be closer to the door I think like but we don't we don't keep the same sides necessarily if we like go to a hotel yeah, I was or wondering somewhere it, else. Like I don't know. Oh, I don't really pay attention. Yeah, that yeah. is an interesting twist. Do you do you keep the same sides yes. at the hotel? I do. I will say I generally do want to be near the door. It's that weird thing where you're the man. If an intruder comes in, I guess I'm supposed to be the one to get it. How heteronormative. <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought, how heteronormative <laughs> could we be? Yeah. John, um, you and your wife, I assume, you you keep the yes. same side because you are not an alien. Uh, no. Is this where you tell I, us that you are an alien? I don't do believe I'm an alien. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, we're always uh, on the road, mm -hmm. camping under the stars. You name it. I'm on the right side of the bed mm -hmm. as you face the bed, so stage right. Yes. <laughs> She's on the left. I'm stage right. She's right. also stage right. right. Put John I'm also on the right side of the bed. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm stage right. And that's right. it. And, so and if this you're lying <laughs> down, are you on the right or the left? So, 
If you are lying in the my bed. My wife would be to my right. Yeah, same. Right, exactly. Yes. Now your wife would be my stage right. Stage my husband would yes. be my right. I sleep to my husband's <laughs> right. Although it is interesting when you think, I guess the only other couple you always have to compare yourselves to are your parents, right? Yeah. Who you observed for decades. They were the opposite. They no, are. no, they were the same. Not what no, my saying. parents were yeah, the opposite. Yeah, my parents yeah. were the same. Um, and I would say, hmm. yes, no matter what we're doing, if we're traveling, camping, wherever we are, if I'm alone, and my husband is out of town. I still sleep you stay on my on that side spot. of the bed. Same, I think I do same. too, unless I let the dog sleep in the bed and then she moves me to one side or the yeah. other. The dog is constantly And, right. and I'll tell you me. something about stage uh, being on, always on stage right, right. when Ooh. the door is closer to stage left. Yeah. Yes. When we're both exhausted and we hear Buddy crying because she wants to go out asleep? for one final you-know-what, I'm, I'm able to just turn and say, honey, you're closer. <laughs> <laughs> that must be why my husband has me on this that side true. of the bed, right? Because it's Chivalry closest to the is door. not dead on John true. Keller. Well, no, it, might, it might be dying, though. If he has it, it's his way. Don't make me come over there Go. and smack you. <laughs> <laughs> How about the couch? I mean, we can end here, but on the couch, are you on the... Who's sleeping on the couch? No, 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 no but I mean, just, just when you're sitting, sitting for watching no, TV. That's you, no, that switches, no. right? No, no, no I think whatever. if you're too fixated on that... Yeah, that then, switches. Like, the aliens me. are not going to get you on the couch. No, no, so no, I don't but, think but, you have to worry But I do think that's a good no. way to figure out who's who. The answer is more technology. More and better. More and better. and better. Uh, this one was kind of all over the map. Yeah. Uh, it was a marathon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we are available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a rating and review. Subscribe and share. Tell your friends. Our Twitter handle is at StudioBZPod. And I'm at Paula Eben, WBZ. Uh, at Keller at Large. At Lisa WBZ. Yeah, to think about that for a second. I, I was going to fill like, in for geez, you Jeez, I have two. <laughs> and I am at Thank Liam you. WBZ, which is funny because you and I, Lisa, are anchoring... Uh, the five, six, and eleven o'clock newscast this week because David's off. And in the in the teleprompter, how often do you and I confuse each other for the other when we're reading the right. scripts? Right, we're just because it's two. You know, we're one, just one, one consonant away. Yeah, mm-hmm. one consonant different. They should make it Lisa and Martin. Well, sometimes they do. Sometimes Martin they do Martin and Hughes. And Hughes mm-hmm. But then that's kind of confusing. Like- Private eyes. We about just kind of cool. That was actually that would actually right. be a pretty good right. private eye show. Da-da-da. Martin and Hughes. Yeah. <laughs> How about Yin and Yang? <laughs> yin and Yang. Who would be the Yin and who'd be the Yang there? Oh, There's a whole Well, thank you for joining us, Lisa. Oh, this was cool. great. Thank I you your, so much. Love Come back again. Very fun. We'll see if she can do it again in April. That'd we hope so. Yeah. We'll be the only station broadcasting That's live from the Boston Marathon. And what would be the date on that again, Lisa? April fifteenth. Tax we'll day. There. <laughs> oh wait, we got to do the will yeah. be seeing you. Did you have you been oh, here yes. for the will be seeing you? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, oh, go ahead. I think so, but I didn't know what was happening. And you know, as we have an annoying tendency to say at the end of every program, we'll, we'll be, be seeing you. you. <laughs> you only occasionally forget to say it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, someone should write a harmony. Thank you. Awesome. For yes. that. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> you know what I mean? Someone should write a, the harmony for that. 